0: You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Rogue. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. Pro Tour Phyrexia is in the books. What happens when the pros try to break the Pioneer meta? We take a look at the latest technology from a star-studded field. After that, 12 cards are on the ballot for our next monthly project. You decide which card we brew next. All that and more is coming up. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show!
1: Faithless Brewing Podcast. I am David Robertson, coming to you from the Twin Cities, and I am joined by the CEO of the Faithless Brewing Podcast. He is Then Online, Daniel Schiever. Dan, what's going on?
0: Hey, David. I'm doing well. It's good to be with you here on Pro Tour Weekend.
1: Pro Tour Weekend. Yeah, it uh, took a little break, a little uh, siesta, but it uh, it has returned, and people have been excited about it. It's been kind of uh, heartwarming to uh, to see
0: feels nice to say that again as i talk to you right now i have a second screen open with the gentle sound of cards being obsessively flicked through a player's hand it's like a little <laughs> rhythm you miss that you just yeah. don't get that with the digital only stuff i
1: actually think they have to turn up the mics higher so you can hear the flicking more like i feel like it used to be you could really like hear you know like when shota would make a play or luis luis got a bragging, so you'd hear like the and then they <laughs> put the card like you'd, you actually could hear it a lot crisper
0: I've been kind of tracking that. I've been watching on and off throughout the weekend and, and there are some feature matches where you can actually hear the banter pretty clearly. They put the mics pretty close and you just like hear like a random comment that Reed Duke makes to the other player he's, he's playing against. But then there are other matches like when uh, Shota Yasoka is playing where it's just like it's like you're watching a silent film, you know, or like a, a <laughs> tutorial, like a YouTube tutorial where they sped everything up so that you're just seeing the essentials of like how to do this the best possible way. No words are exchanged. Nothing is communicated. And it's actually very difficult to tell like whether a Shale Dread trigger has happened or not because, uh, you know, they have to have someone manually update, you know, what the life totals right. are. But it lags behind a little bit and you can never really tell, like, did, did he get that trigger or not?
1: Well, and the thing is, he doesn't ever miss triggers. And I used to think it's like, okay, you know, he's Japanese. I know he's not fluent in English, so I thought that was part of it. But when he plays other Japanese players, he also doesn't speak. He still communicates, you know, through, like, hand gestures. You know, of course, he plays at a million miles an hour with this incredibly precise play. But uh, even as he was crushing his uh, his uh, Japanese opponent, who I think was on mono White, he was just like,
0: mm-hmm. he's
1: just brief little hand, Like, oh, okay, I'm down too. All right, you're dead. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah he's he's going to he's going to destroy you uh, regardless of your native language I guess is the lesson.
0: So does a master. Yeah, I think he has now tied or he's either tied or moved past Kaibuda. And Louis Scott Vargas on all-time.
1: He moved past them, was the announcement, which is surprising to me. You know, the longest rub for a while is he, of course, had the respect of the other pros. You'd hear Louis Scott Vargas and uh, multiple other people speak very highly of him, but they say you just didn't have the finishes. A lot of it was because he was not a great limited player. All pro tours, basically, since he became a pro-involved limited. And, you know, if you 2-4 limited, you have to really have a perfect uh, record in Standard or Modern or Pioneer or whatever to make the top eights. And I don't know if he just, people have gotten worse at Limited, the sets have gotten easier to play Limited, he's gotten way better at Limited, he's joined a team where he, like, picks someone's brain, like, I don't know what the process is, but, like, he's 6-0 Limited in this tournament, and then the fact that he's, you know, among the better uh, actual constructed players of all time um has, like, shown through, and now you wouldn't say, like, the argument was he didn't have enough finishes for the uh, Hall of Fame, and in fact, when he was elected, he was really on the lower cost, but... I was like, I guess people had so much respect and now he's got more finishes than, you know, we think of these people as slam dunk, uh, <laughs> yeah. hall of fame. You like tease, right? I mean, uh, Louis Scott Vargas, uh, Kaibu, I mean, these are, these are, you know, first ballot people. And I think he was tied with Nassif and Nassif added one as well later on, uh, Nassif top aided as well. So I think he's, he's feeling the uh, hellhounds on his, on his heels.
0: I think that's number 10 for Nassif. Is that right?
1: Yes, I believe so.
0: so. Yeah, congrats to all of them. amazing competitors in the top eight. Shoddy Asoka, Reed Duke, Gab Nassif. These are household names, and Nathan Stoyer, the current world champion, a name you should be getting to know. If we had the Pro Tour for the past couple years, you would know his name uh, for sure by now. He's crushing everything. Yeah, this is a worthy return to Pro Tour play. I've enjoyed it. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about what we saw in the metagame, some of the technology, to the extent that there's new technology, it's just good to be back.
1: Yeah, well, before we get to all that, we need to, of course, take care of a little housekeeping. We want to welcome our newest patrons, Kale M, sounds very healthy, mm-hmm. and Deckard. Uh, I love the reference there as well, if, if it is a reference to what I think it is. Um,
0: I don't know that reference. What is Deckard? You don't know Deckard? Should I know Deckard?
1: Deckard is the, uh, name uh, the last name of Harrison Ford's character in, um, Philip K. Dix. Yeah, um,
0: you've lost me completely. <laughs> if it's not the fugitive, it, then I don't know <laughs> what we're talking about
1: in blade, in blade runner, uh, in blade okay. runner. Gotcha. So, uh, I don't know what his first name is actually, now that I'm thinking of it. Uh, everyone refers to him as Deckard. I believe Deckard is his last name though. Gotcha. Um, Okay. So Blade Runner, a spectacular movie, 1982. Blade Runner 2049 is super underrated. It's actually just amazing. Uh, I don't know if anyone, if if they're on our um, Patreon, they've seen my list of underrated films. And I also submitted a list of like my favorite films of the decade. And certainly um, Blade Runner 2049 is among, I think, one of the better movies. And in general, the, the director there also did Dune. Dune 2 is coming out this fall. Is like the one of the few people still kind of keeping alive the like James Cameron, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg dream, like these mass entertainments that are still actually spectacular movies.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay.
1: So I'm assuming this person is referencing Deckard. Uh, I just looked it up online. Rick Deckard is his name. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, a patron of taste and culture for sure. Yeah. Both Kale and Deckard, thank you both very much for your support. And as always, a reminder that if you are enjoying the show, would like to support us, the best way to do that is by going to our Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. Among the benefits that you will receive is you get access to our wonderful Discord community. Brews are always flying there. Always great to see what people are working on, see the ideas iterated on. And occasionally, you know, we see some pretty sweet 5 O's coming out of the Discord. Another benefit is you can vote for cards. From time to time, we have a monthly project in which people can nominate cards. We open that up to all of our patrons to choose what card we work on next. And that's actually one of our topics for today. I see 12 cards have been submitted this time around. We'll tell you all about those later in the show.
1: Absolutely. So on to the business at hand. Pioneer was the format of the Pro Tour there were only there was like the smallest pro tour in like a decade and a half or something, so there weren't that many competitors. It's two hundred and some.
0: Yeah, I think because this is the beginning of the the new new pro tour system, they haven't seeded it yet with carryover qualifications. So they're just like going out on the street and grabbing people. Like, would you like to come and play a tournament? <laughs> we got to put butts in seats here. And
1: I think the Hall of Famer thing, you only get, like, one a year, and so many Hall of Famers are choosing to use their uh, one on a format that is not Pioneer, is kind of my understanding. If they didn't like the format or had time mm-hmm. to practice That's the format, they wanted to wait for standard or, or modern or you know whatever. I, I, obviously, each Hall of Famer is making a decision on their own, but, like... Martin Yuza got in through his Hall of Fame qualification, um, maybe because he likes Pioneer, maybe he's just excited to play in a pro tour, but I know a lot of other Hall of Famers chose not to participate in a specific tournament. Maybe you don't want to go to Philadelphia in the winter. That's, that seems pretty reasonable to me. <laughs> it's a terrible, <laughs> terrible city.
0: <laughs> so a small field, but 200-some players turning their attention to Pioneer, what did they come up with? I mean, I think that over the last five even 10 years. We've kind of given up on the dream of the pros breaking the format. It just doesn't really happen. Um, many of them have talked quite openly about they they no longer consider that a good use of their testing time trying to come up with new decks. So I didn't see that much new. I mean, there's some iterating on flex slots on the known archetypes, but there are only like three, maybe four decks that I feel like we hadn't seen before.
1: Yeah, which is kind of be, to be expected, right? When when Pioneer was the qualification format, people just jammed, you know. F- Luckily, there's a bunch of different archetypes that are, you know, in the tier one or two, and people try those, right, over and over again. And if they kind of like the gameplay of those existing decks, they like the format. And if they didn't like them, then they didn't. And uh, the, the Pro Tour uh, deck selection of, of the uh, pros reflects that type of attitude towards the format.
0: So we're just going to tell you about a few lists that caught our eye, uh, either for their novelty or for their your unique approach on known archetypes. And we've got to start with Shota. Shota Yasoka, Hall of Famer, world-class player, a bit of a lone wolf. I mean, they say that he doesn't test with anyone. They say that he doesn't even test at all, that he just sort of theory crafts. He looks at the format, identifies what he sees as holes or opportunities for attacking, and just builds his deck the week before the tournament or the day before the registration is due. Often a control deck, although today he chose Rakdos midrange. So what did Shota find?
1: Well, it's interesting. It looks at first kind of like a stock list, but the difference in it from the other lists is, is minor, but relatively meaningful. He's playing 26 lands. I don't think I've seen another Rakdos list play 26 He's playing three Mutavolts. I think typically they play zero. Mm-hmm. Um, Reckoner Bankbuster main deck is something that we have actually seen. Uh, Misplaced Gingers is, is one of the like respected grinders of the format. He's been main decking one or two for a while. Um, He's main decking a single Duress, which is uncommon. He's main decking two Lilianas, which is uncommon. I'm still trying to figure out what he cut. I think it's additional two mana removal. He's only playing two Dreadbore, one Power Word Kill. Uh, and then it's become very standard, I think, to replace some number of Graveyard Trespassers with the Reckoner Bankbusters. He's only playing two Trespassers, and that's kind of been the number that I've seen from people.
0: I've seen some lists playing as many as three copies of Reckoner Bankbuster. it only wants one, and he's not playing any. Well, correction. He's playing one additional copy in his sideboard. But I feel like the Mutivold is the most telling thing. It seems to me like Shoda has identified that what what Rakdos needs is the ability to apply pressure and just watching him play when he was on camera. He attacked in a lot of situations where I personally would not have attacked. Like he just he didn't even think about it. or well, I'm sure he thought about it, but he just like automatically started turning everything sideways. Maybe identifying that, you know, the reason that Rakdos can be successful is that it doesn't really give opponents that much time. You've got to put him on the back foot. And the Mutavaults went a long way towards that. He's also playing two Misery of Shadows main deck where some builds are playing zero, some are playing a Kroxa instead. Um, some players are playing, you know, as many as three Castle Lothwains, showed us playing zero. So he's not interested in playing this long card draw game. He's a little more interested in just getting them dead.
1: Yeah, Kroxa is by far the worst card in the entire deck. No one should have ever been playing any, so that's the easiest cut. Maybe just getting rid of those makes your deck way better. You know, Misery Shadow is a card that gives you your matchup against Mono Green. So, you know, people piss and moan all the time about how Mono Green needs to get banned. Then they won't play the cards that are good against them. So it's like, all right, I'll just play Misery Shadow. It's really good against them. To your point, it's also a very aggressive card in the linear matchups. It's it's good against Mono Green. It's good against Lotus Field. <laughs> uh, you know, that last turn when you need to kill them, you just tap for your mana and the treasure that your um, Fable token makes. And all of a sudden, you know, you've, you've sped up the clock by a full turn or something. Um yeah, you know Reckoner Bankbuster, all these cards that are super grindy. I I think Red Black really misunder, misunderstands its role. It's very easy to outgrind Red Black. Uh, I talk about it all the time. It's hard for Red Black to win matchups where the polarization is happening. That's one of the reasons why Fable's very good in this deck, right? It turns your fatal pushes and whatever. So he's reduced the mana cost, he's playing to rest Again, that's a very easy exchange and he's he's adjusted his deck to be good against the polarized matchups, and the thing that you have to do against the linear decks, and there's a bunch of them that top-aided, is you need to disrupt their hands, he's playing 5 hand-disruption spells not 4, plus 2 Liliana, which is super rare, so I guess 7 hand-disruption spells, and then he's also more aggressive, so he's somehow like, <laughs> he's shorted up all those matchups, and the only thing he loses is a little bit of quote-unquote inevitability in mid-range grinding matchups, which only, you know, people in the three, one bracket in leagues play (laughs) where this is where I dwell. Um, So yeah, maybe his list would be worse uh, against the types of decks that I'm often proposing, but you know, there's no, (laughs) there's a reason I'm not on the pro tour.
0: Yeah. And I think the last point to make is just that, that mana base, the extra land, the 26 land and the three mutivolts. I think when Ragtos was becoming established, People were thinking, maybe I'll play 23, and then that quickly went up to 24 lands. And over time, we've seen that become 25 is now pretty stock. Rakdos is a kind of deck where I think Sam Black would say, it's not that you have to play 25 lands, it's that you get to play 25 lands. You get to have very consistent mana because your lands are so good that you know drawing extra lands doesn't really hurt you in Rakdos because your utility is... Always there, right? You have amazing creature lands or utility lands such as Takanuma, such as Castle Lockplain, if you want. Shota's saying, yes, I like all of that, right? Let's go even higher, right? He doesn't want to miss any land drops. But Mutavault, instead of some of these slower utility lands, I mean, this just lets you be so mana efficient, right? If you're interested in chip damage, Mutivolt has so many opportunities throughout the game. You know, you, you spend two mana on a stomp three mana on something else and you have just enough left over with a treasure to like get in for two more damage and you see him doing this over and over again once you identify that actually Rakdos is interested in that then yeah actually it makes a lot of sense and I, I don't think I've seen anyone playing Mutavolt because you know if you're thinking oh I, I need to cast Bloodtide Harvester on turn two then it just wouldn't occur to you to put Mutavolt into the deck
1: yeah although to your point when people were playing 23 lands they had exactly the same number of red and black lands <laughs> I show it showed it does exactly um and, and to your point, Dan, about mana efficiency, it's not just about getting in with me vault. It's also getting to play your fourth land untapped mm. all the time, basically. There's a bunch of times where your opponent can, like, play a Blood Tithe Harvester and stomp your whatever, or, you know, pay extra mana to stomp your Thalia and cast a Fatal Push, or what, like. So the extra land coming into play tapped happens all the time, where they, you know, on turn four have to just play a Fable and a Tap Land. That's a really bad turn four. And he just doesn't ever, or I guess significantly less commonly, has to make those types of plays.
0: So he's playing the full four copies of Haunted Ridge that's untapped from turn three onward. Four Blackleaf Cliffs, right? That's the fast land where it was not totally clear if Red Black even needed it, but showed us say, I like that so much. I'm playing all four along with one Den of the Bugbear, two Hive of the Eye Tyrant. These are the lands that will be tapped from turn three onward or turn four onward. Only two Blightstep Pathway, that's interesting, and two Sulphurous Springs. So perhaps a recognition there that, you know, because of the Mutavolts, you don't want the full set of pathways. You, you could commit it to too many single color lands.
1: And then Urborg is uh, a utility land, but no Sokenzin. So he's definitely like thought about all these things and he's, you know, made his trade offs where they matter. And obviously it worked out very well for him. There were a ton of linear decks in this uh, tournament, and so his deck is very well-equipped to deal with them.
0: Yeah. So, great job from Shota, and we'll see if this becomes the stock build of Rakdos going forward. The next deck that I want to bring to our attention is another one that made it to top 8. This is Green-White Auras, Selesnya Auras, from Benton Medzin. Auras, as we know, will typically rely on Lightpaw's Emperor's Voice and SRAM Senior Edificer. These are your kind of two mana engine creatures. Together with a bunch of auras, but you need more than that, right? So you need additional threats, ideally one drops. That is a puzzle that the deck hadn't really been able to solve uh, in, in previous iterations. But things have changed, right? It's this new card, Skrelv, Defector Might. I see four copies in the main deck, and that seems to be the key to the resurgence of Oros.
1: Yeah, the fact that Skrelv is free is so huge. Um, You know, Before they were playing the one-mana, one-one enchantment that had lifelink, and you had to spend a mana to sacrifice it to protect a creature. Uh, I, I won't, of course, think of its name.
0: Oh, um... Gosh. I'll say it of Life's Bounty, is that it?
1: Yes, yep, exactly. So now you get to play Skralve. Okay, Skralve can't block. It doesn't have Life Link. Those are not trivial things, but fine. But if you play Skralve on turn one, they have to kill it and never even dream about getting a two-for-one with you when you try to enchant it because on turn two, you're just going to play your SRAM, play your Light Paw. So you have to kill everything as it's played out. Uh, Skralve forces them to spend their removal inefficiently and it is an artifact itself, so, like, all the glitters counts it, <laughs> which yeah mattered in a, in a game or two that I saw. So, yeah, just a, just a really efficient card, and, you know, that Mother of Ruins type of effect is really miserable. Uh, a miserable thing to have in Magic, and it makes sense that a card that mimics that is going to have a home.
0: <laughs> so you're not a fan of Skrill as a card?
1: I think they did everything they could to make this ability weaker. You can't use it over and over again uh, for free. You have to pay mana. Um, but in general, you know, th- this is the kind of thing that when people play against, it's just it's death by a thousand cuts. Like you don't lose the game right then, but you eventually will lose the game. It takes people a long time to understand the play patterns. It is sort of a bolt the bird kind of a thing. And it uh, discourages certain types of interaction.
0: Yeah. So, in addition to the Skrelves, we see four Glade Cover Scout. That's the last Hexproof creature in the deck. A good sign for the archetype that it's no longer playing that terrible two-mana Hexproof creature, the Basara Tower Archer.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you you talk about going from that to Generous Visitor, Light Paws, and Skrelve. It's just night and day. (laughs) The man is better. (laughs) I mean, everything about it.
0: I mean, what were we doing when people were playing Season of Growth and Basara Tower Archer? Like, I understand those were the best options, but those are not serious ways to win in high-level Pioneer play.
1: Well, deck was still very good against Red Black, specifically. It just couldn't yeah, beat anything else. That's true.
0: <laughs> uh, so we see some new technology in the form of Audacity. Well, relatively new. That's from, I think, last set. Again, the mana base is another area where major upgrades have been made possible thanks to the Fastland. Razor Verge Thicket, Temple Garden... This is a low land count deck. It's only 19 lands. And you see that after playing the full four shocklands lands and fast lands, uh Benton Madsen's playing three mana confluence. Now that that could have been a brush land. But you might occasionally draw your one of Hammer Hand or your one of Kaya's Ghost Form. And if we're gonna be tapping the brushland for a damage every turn anyway, you know, might as well just play Mana Confluence instead. But you see the recognition there that yeah I, I may be playing several turns with access to only one or two lands and I I don't want to and I need to keep my options open basically for spending my mana efficiently and using all my mana every turn.
1: Yeah, and then the matchups you know this is a deck that is very good against red black and it's very good against mono green and those are the two most common decks in the format. So you know if you have a matchup spread like that if can you fix the other matchups or can you dodge them? And the answer in Benton's case was yes.
0: Yeah, uh, this deck is very bad against Thalia. It turns out you you don't think of green white as a deck that's bad, Thalia, <laughs> right. but this one becomes extremely clunky against Thalia.
1: But it's such a it's such a classic metagame call, right? Like red black should chase out mono white, and then I will beat red black after they do that for me. Uh, and that's <laughs> more or less what happened uh, when in the games that I was watching.
0: So, congrats to Benton on the Pro Tour success. I see uh, a Magic Online player, Rusty Fifty Six took the list and won the pioneer super qualifier yesterday with the exact same deck list. So looks like this is a deck on the rise. Be aware of it. I don't know if that means you want to register back to nature or something in your deck. I'm not really sure <laughs> uh, how to account for our as yet, but it's going to be a player.
1: Yeah. I mean, the main thing, right, is you need to have cheap removal. So the card like fatal push gets even better <laughs> uh, than it had been. Um, because you have to kill the light pause the turn it comes into play and if they play scryve on turn one that means you have to kill scryve on turn one so you have to kill scryve on turn one and light pause on turn two, um, and you know you're, it's really hard for a normal deck to race those that opening if you don't interact with it.
0: All right, so those are two decks that made top eight. Uh, the next couple here were less successful but still interesting and novel decks that I had not quite seen before. So I'll give them a brief mention here. This next deck comes to us from Nick Cirillo, who's Bob and Cheese. His tournament went up and down. He said on Twitter that uh, you know he started, he started off one and four, but rallied back to make day two. And then he was six and seven at one point, but managed to rally with this constructed deck to get up to the nine wins he needed to requalify for the next PT. So congratulations to him. And he did it with a deck that, I mean, it, we can call it a brew. He called it a brew. It's a deck that I would not consider meta. It's basically five-color Niv without the Niv-Mizzets, which is a bit sad to say, but when you look at the spells that is playing, you see that very, very few of them are actually eligible for Niv-Mizzets, and I think we've reached the point where, you know, the good cards in the format are no longer gold. Fable of the Mirror Breaker is better than any gold card you can think of, <laughs> so there's like not a lot of incentive to be filling your deck with Gold cards that are eligible for Niv. So we even see four Bring to Lights. It's four Bring to Lights and zero Niv It. Instead, this is an Omnath to Light deck. A lot of the structure is the same. You have a lot of Triomes, you have a lot of Sylvan Caryatids. The Bring to Light package includes cards you'd expect, like uh, you know Valky, there's your one Extinction Event, your one Selfless Glyph Weaver, which can function as a, as a Wrath spell. The part where things get a little spicy is there's a single copy of Elish Norn, Mother of Machines. What does Alice Norn do when it's in play? One copy main, but you can bring to light for it. So there are certain situations you should be aware of that you can bring to light, get Alice Norn, and immediately follow that up with a Chain to the Rocks or a Leyline Binding, four copies of each, right? So both of these are trigger removal spells, so you can actually have a huge catch-up turn. Get your Alice Norn down and immediately take out two of your opponent's threats. Alice Norn is also insane with Omnath. It makes a single land trigger um, Omnath's first two abilities, the life and the mana, which is otherwise very hard to do in Pioneer.
1: Yeah, this list has actually been around for a while. I mean, I'm not saying it's not a brew, but I've played against this list. I mean, this list has existed for a couple of years. The big additions are the Leyline Bindings, which is the main reason why Niv is gone. Leyline Binding, as you guys correctly identified when it was spoiled, was a huge player Modern. And it basically means all these slow Triumph decks, it is their... Fatal push, right? So it's actually good against Grease Fang. It's good against uh random stuff. Okay, even against the, the list we just talked about, you can't hit their creature sometimes, but you can actually take their best enchantment off the board because Leyland Binding hits everything. So Leyline Binding is the card that like tilts everything away from Niv and it rewards you for playing all your terrible lands. And the fact that Alish Norn, exactly like you're saying, makes Leyline Binding somehow even better. Uh like tips it again and then the Chain to the Rocks, Fatal Push thing, they don't play a lot of Swamps. They do like the efficiency of Chain, and Chain, again, goes up in value, exactly the lines you're describing with Elish Norn. So, um, yeah, the one of Elish Norn and the, the Ley Line Binding are the, are the reasons that I think uh, that Niv is not part of the deal, and Omnath's interaction with Elish Norn, which I hadn't realized until you just outlined them, is, is another thing. So, I don't think it's the multicolored spells, per se. I really think it's leyline Binding's interaction with the Triomes.
0: And the four Chained to the Rocks, which I typically would not expect to see both Chained and Binding. So I think that is the part that is yeah. maybe like the new innovation.
1: And it's such a catch-up mechanism, right? Like you you play Omnath, they whatever, kill it. Then you bring the Light for Elishnorn. The next turn, you spend like two mana and exhale their entire board. It's like a super Wrath that's one-sided because you're left with Elishnorn and it stops future cards from them. So
0: Yeah. I actually tried this deck last night. Um, I was I added some Atraxxus to it because that was the card we were testing from last week. Uh, it was interesting. I'll, I'll have more to say about it in our second show this week. But from Omnath-Helite, uh, we move on to something that was called Blue-White Power Stones.
1: Yeah, wild. so first of all, it's a Iron deck. Um, and it's trying to take advantage of the fact that a lot of things come into play and leave uh, value specifically the card static net caught my high so that's three and a white o-ring and when it comes into play you gain two life and create a tapped power stone so what can you do with the power stone well this deck actually has a bunch of stuff to do with them they're playing Four disruption protocol so that's blue blue counter spell if you tap an artifact so you get to play in theory the best counter spell in the format as long as you have a ready source of artifacts you're playing fourth raven inspector which makes an artifact a tap for your disruption protocol. Also, uh you can use all your random power stones to <laughs> sacrifice your clue's uh prophetic prism, a card that blinks very well for your ion. Also, you can spend a mana from a power stone into your prophetic prism, so your your
0: Ooh.
1: artifact token is a mana generator.
0: So does that allow you to filter a power stone mana into a real mana?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I see. So you have portable hole. That's a blinkable card. Glass casket. That's a blinkable card. Reckoner Bankbuster, If you if you prefer to have the cards, uh, you can blink it again. <laughs> you know you're not you're not in a hurry to beat them down with a four four. Um, it also is another card that you can use your your uh, power stone on. A might stone, and a weak stone is a giant power stone, right? So it taps for all these other cards, and then you have Karn Sign to find artifacts. And then you have Metallic Rebuke, so all these artifacts lying around. Again, you get to play eight of the best counter spells in the format if you have enough artifacts, and this deck, you know, seems like it will. We just listed a million artifacts, and most of them have counter-play abilities. To go with your your Orion, yeah, I mean, that's kind of it. It's it's strange. <laughs> I I don't know how this deck did. I'd be really interested to try it out. I'd be interested to try it out without urian to see if you can, like, find the actual good cards. Like, I love Sign of Urza and normally Dan convinces me to take it out of decks and then the deck is just way better (laughs) so I'd be tempted to do that again here (laughs) and find a different way to win the game Um, yeah just I mean I've of course tooled around a lot with a Thraben Inspector Prophetic Prism Portable Hole kind of thing I wonder if you could build like an Elish Norn version of this deck so your static net gains you 4 life, (laughs) excels 2 creatures makes 2 uh, stones. Obviously, Mightstone and Weakstone gets better with Elish Norn. Uh, You know, just something to think about, but I'd have to see how this person uh, did, and I'd be curious to like, pick their brain on how they decided on the specific build.
0: Yeah, why aren't they playing Elish Norn? It's almost like a, a budget build, like they only have the 100 ticks rental limit or something, and this is the best <laughs> that you could <can> do.
1: <laughs> They're like, oh, I can't play the good Karn. Because <laughs> normally, <laughs> when you play Urian, that's an excuse, in my mind, to play the better Karn. Because your sideboard's so bad in your eye anyway, right? You see the cards less frequently. Why not play a sideboard that's Mm -hmm. full of artifacts to tutor uh, that are situationally very powerful? But um, they have four Monastery Mentor in their sideboard. Like, they're even going for a sideboard juke in their 80-card deck. So I'm not 100% sure on some of these choices, but I like... The idea hadn't really occurred to me to, like, go almost in on, like, a control type of shell. Um... And of course, I was always trying to play some of the four mana planeswalkers that we've been a little disappointed with. Maybe you don't need those at all. Um, so yeah, just I, I I like a lot of the ideas here. It just seems like maybe too much is happening, or maybe they did awesome and they just you know played poorly and limited, and and this is like a new archetype. I, I I don't know how they did.
0: I'm not sure either, and I'm far less than a hundred percent confident in this deck. I'm like twenty percent confident in this deck. This looks really strange to me. I will say that I do think you have to play a companion, right? Because that's one of your payoffs for having Power Stones, is that you, you get the free companion activation, more or less. Oh, sure. And then, you know, I mean, there's four Might Stone, and Weak Stone so that must be one of the the strong cards in the deck. They're not even playing Urza, so they're only interested in the Might Stone and Weak Stone half.
1: Well, Urza's terrible. Uh, that's just...
0: <laughs> sure, sure. But... Yeah, I mean if if Mightstone Weakstone is the card you're hoping to draw the most often, like I want to blink it and I want to use its 2 mana to get my companion for free. But yeah, I mean they're not playing what I thought was one of the better power stone generators, the the one that you've been t- playing with Stern lesson. So, yeah, static net wouldn't have occurred to me. Like that just seemed clunky to me, but maybe I'm wrong.
1: I mean, if you're going into your it makes a little more sense, but yeah, I I think Stern lesson is a better card than many of the cards here. I've also played a lot with Whitestone Weakstone, and, and it has been really bad. It is good against exactly <laughs> one deck, which is Red Black. And you're already playing Orion; like you should have a good matchup there. So I, you know, I, I have not found Whitestone Weakstone to line up well against any other deck in the entire format. And have started with four multiple times. This isn't just theory crafting. I played multiple leagues, where my outcome is like, oh, I should cut down on my might stone and weak stones they're you know it's bad against green it's bad against mono white it's not good against phoenix obviously it's not good against lotus or i mean like just think through your head about all the matchups you might play it's bad against spirits it, it doesn't line up well against any other deck like five mana draw two is not it so if the minus five minus five isn't relatively <laughs> useful and it's only again only good against red black then what, what are we doing here
0: All right. Well, kudos to Jeff Lynn for registering a sweet brew.
1: Absolutely sweet a brew.
0: Absolute brew.
1: Four Arch of Araska in the graveyard in the in the deck to turn on with all the clues or the the power stones. Oh my
0: gosh! Okay. All right. I didn't even see that there.
1: And then you can tap it with all the <laughs> all the power
0: stones. Four storm giants and four Arch of Araska. Okay. So there's something going on here. Two Fair. And the last deck I want to mention is an Is It Mindsplace Apparatus deck, registered by Chris Botello, who's, you know, MPL, great player, uh, great streamer as well. Mindsplace Apparatus happens to be our card of the week, so we're going to have a whole session on this uh, coming up on Friday. So we'll say more about this deck. Then, it was just cool to see that one player was confident enough in the Mindsplace Apparatus to actually take it to this event. I do not know how he did. I did not see his name mentioned much on the coverage. But, uh, yeah, some promise for Minespace Apparatus. I believe his build was more or less, uh, is it Phoenix Shell, but replacing the Phoenixes with Mindspace Apparatus? Yeah. Wasn't too out there, um, but maybe a vote of confidence, we could say, for the power of the card.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay, so that's kind of the brew report for Pro Tour. Phyrexia, the return of the Pro Tour, a Pioneer Pro Tour. We'd love to see that. We're going to shift gears now. Setting aside professional play, we go now into the land of bruise. We've been working on Rivaz of the Claw for our monthly projects, and it's time for something new, David. <laughs> no shade at Rivaz, although it's been hard to find match wins. It's been real hard. Not going to say more about Rivaz today. Uh, I might try... You know, one or two more things with Capricious Hellraiser uh, before we tie that off. But it is time to go through the nominees for next month's card.
1: Yeah, so just a reminder, this is a benefit you get uh, of joining the Patreon at a certain level. Mm-hmm. And so you get to nominate the cards, and then people at, at uh, who have joined at any level get to vote. And uh, what do you get, three votes, Dan?
0: Something like that, yeah. Choose your three favorites.
1: All right, so the first card we want to highlight comes from Lurking Evil, and Lurking Evil has a nominated Ratadrobic of Erborg, A two white and a black, 3-3 three, three, zombie wizard, Vigilance Ward 2. Other zombies you control have Vigilance. Whenever another legendary creature you control dies, create a token that's a copy of that creature, except it's not legendary, and it's a 2-2 two, two black zombie in addition to its other colors and types. So Lurking Evil writes, Far from seeing much play in Pioneer, Ratadrabic, am I saying this correctly? Ratadrabic, <laughs> this is a bad name. They need, they need to work on this. Okay, does however pack many interesting features? It is somehow resilient to removal, great point with war two. Plays well with other zombies, uh, other zombies you control have vigilance. That's not a great lord ability, but it's not nothing. Uh, and brings something new when you play legendaries and multiples. Uh, so yeah, if you play two legendary of the same type, right, your second Thalia goes to the graveyard and triggers and comes back, and that second copy doesn't die, it stays as a zombie. Uh, with a number of powerful legendaries printed in the last years, I am sure that one could brew something worth talking about, especially with those who have a continuous effect or an ETB dying
0: trigger. So this card is hard for me to wrap my brain around. I know that during the preview episode, we were intrigued by the abilities, but it's an odd mana cost. Four for a 3-3 three, three is, even though it has Ward 2, it's just not the type of card that we can easily slot into decks, so you really have to like work for this. It's a death trigger for legendary creatures. The legend rule can provide that. Actually, I saw some chatter about this card over the weekend. You know this hypothetical game people play where what's the most damage you can do without going infinite with just three cards?
1: (laughs) I've heard of such a thing, yes.
0: And apparently there's a new contender for the most damage is Radhadrabic plus... What's that legend? It's like a legend that doubles tokens, basically.
1: (laughs) Oh, Mondrock or whatever?
0: Something like that. And you just get like a cascading exponential amount of copies. It's a very, very interesting card. Definitely this will be a thinker if this is the card that people end up choosing.
1: Yeah, what's the two-mana artifact that lets you sacrifice a creature of a type and tutor up a card of the same type that's one more mana?
0: Pyre of Heroes, yeah.
1: Yeah, that, that's kind of an interesting card with this for me.
0: Hmm, Yeah.
1: And you don't you think okay, zombie and wizard? These are both relevant tribes, but you don't need those to matter because you want your Rathead Draybic to survive. So your other cards could all be of a similar type. And if you could get your two mana or three mana legend to die, with a benefit, right? You get the one mana higher on the curve, and then you get the card that you sacrifice back. And you're playing black, so you get to play Thought Season Push, which are the best cards in the format. So uh, there's something here.
0: Yeah, fascinating suggestion from Lurking Evil. Next up is All Will Be One. Three red red enchantment. Whenever you put one or more counters of any type on a permanent or a player, All Will Be One deals that much damage to target, opponent, or creature in opponent controls, or planeswalker in opponent controls. Functionally any target, just not your own stuff. Nominated by Kon Kabalovkas, who writes that multiple infinite combos are possible in modern. Uh, he mentions War Elemental. What's the other one? Quest for Pure Flame? Is that another infinite combo? There's potential for counter shenanigans, non-infinite instant kills in Pioneer, and Khan has mentioned some cards of interest such as Font of Agonies. That's interesting. Master Biomancer Wildwood Scourge. Hmm.
1: Yeah, Font of Agonies is kind of interesting to me.
0: (laughs) That accumulates counters every time you pay life. So. I mean, you can you can rack up a bunch of counters on that if you want, with just Phyrexian mana,
1: or even the like, or even the one in a white a uh, one one. You can pay four life to make it indestructible. Because I'm thinking, like, when you cast this, you want to have more life than your opponent, right? So you're playing the the two mana three one. You get in a couple times, mm. and then you just resolve this and just indestructible for you, indestructible for
0: yes, you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's hard to see how the three red-red fits into that because I'm like, oh, that's a quick white-black deck, right? I'll have my Font of Agonies and my Knight of the Ebon Legion on turn one, Adanto Vanguard turn two.
1: Yeah, the, the hard thing is always, <laughs> why are you taking time off to play a 5 man enchantment, right? Can you make all your cards kind of make sense together? So, there's th- But there's something there. I I, I agree with, uh, with uh, this person that this card is very interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean I know you like the card, David. You've already I mean, we talked about it uh two weeks ago. Put together an is it list for this card. It's a very interesting card, all all will be one. Somebody on Twitter asked me after that episode, they asked if we'd considered using like harness lightning in a tomb with ether as our defense and setup package because those just pick up energy counters so fast.
1: Oh man, harness lightning is an awesome call. I did I'd not considered it. So whoever that is is a genius. The other one, I'm. Little, I mean, Harness Lightning is actually a good card. The other one, I'm a little more speculative on. Well,
0: okay, it doesn't doesn't have to be a Tomb with Ether. It could just be a Dinosaur Tower or something. I don't know. Maybe just Harness Lightning is enough by itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that sh- the shell that I propose is is actually, I think, going to be a re- pretty reasonable deck. And Harness Lightning, maybe even a couple of lands, um, that have that have energy, um, just as a generic a way to pump up the, the harness lightning and another card that can get proliferated to add counters is already worthwhile. Cause the deck is not super color intensive. Mm-hmm. So I like that.
0: Yeah, definitely a sweet card. Challenging five mana enchantments are always challenging, but um, <laughs> yep, this will, this will be a fun one. What's next?
1: All right. Malkator purity overseer, one, a white and a blue one, one, a Phyrexian elephant wizard when it enters the battlefield, create a 3-3 Colorless Phyrexian Golem. And at the beginning of your end step, if three or more artifacts have entered the battlefield under your control this turn, create a 3-3 Colorless Phyrexian Golem. So it starts out like a Blade Splicer, and then it has kind of this extended value you can gain on your turn, every turn, or whatever, every other turn, or whatever, if you have ways to put artifacts into play. And this card was recommended by DGF MTG. He says, Malkator, also known as Rhinos at Home, has so much brewing potential. With just three easy steps, you two can have seven power for three-ish mana. Artifact decks have been in the far reaches of the meta and Pioneer, that is correct. Between 1 and Bro, they are so close to bringing in the mainstream. Some of the cards worth trying with Malkator are Mishra's Research Desk, Combat Courier, and Sold Artifacts, Sahili Filigree Master. It even likes to be Blink with your iron. Wink Wink Mord, plus Malkator Month has a great ring to it. I love this card. Uh, I have a bunch of different uh, ideas. One of which I, I just brewed up this morning involves Sahili. So, if you play three mana Sahili, you can't infinite combo with it anymore. But then you play Malkator, copy it with Sahili. That copies an artifact. Yes. Yes. So, that turn four play ends up with three golems in play and a Phyrexian wizard elephant still in play. They, unlike the Blade Spicer, they actually kind of need to kill it because it can continue making. Three threes at the end of turn if you have a way to do it. And then you still have a Saheli in play. Uh you can put the Saheli combo in there, which is also has a bunch of artifacts. The one mana equipment that can crew Saheli and, you know, whatever cause artifacts to trigger or whatever. I forget what it's called.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm so glad you mentioned this. Because I was just thinking about this too when I saw Malkatour nominated. D Jeff mentions the four mana Saheli, filigree Master, but you're talking about Saheli Rai, classic Saheli.
1: Yeah, Saheli Rai, I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah, you know I don't. I I have like dyslexia for card names. Oh. <laughs> the Sahili that got cat banned.
0: <laughs> exactly, and the reason that works is because the token copy that she makes is itself an artifact. So you yes. end up with like an artifact copy of Melkator, which gets legend ruled away. Who cares? But that counts towards your three artifacts on the turn. So you end up with ten power, right? Yes. Your original Malkator is still there. You have 10 power. This is, it reminded me a lot of when we were trying to combine Saheeli with Asiko's Chariot. And, you know, you can do some tricks there where you end up with like six cats or something plus a Chariot. This is not quite as much, but it's easier on the mana. Um, You can even fit this into modern even. Like I was thinking if I had that in the Sahili Felidar, you know, Solitude Fury, maybe it's a Karuga deck with a line bindings defending me and touch of the spirit realm or something. I mean, Melkator just sort of fits in like, why not? Yeah. I mean,
1: it, it works with counter doubling. So like uh, Mondrak, I've been fooling around with some lists there. Mm, um,
0: nice.
1: It does make artifacts, uh, you know, so we've talked, we've had a bunch of, you know, I've proposed a bunch of <laughs> mediocre, it turns out artifact shells. Um, I actually, in the list that I proposed at the start of the format, if you deadly dispute the ghast on, turn three then play this you actually get your three artifacts that way because deadly dispute makes a treasure when you sack the gast it makes a treasure it's made a neutral so you've uh, and you get your two cards back so you just cast this on turn three and get seven power
0: oh that's pretty slick okay I mean yeah there's a lot to love here
1: I'm <laughs> I'm a melcator fan uh dgf Mtg has brewed up a bunch of sweet five lists as well so this is my pick. You know, I don't get to vote, but uh, <laughs> at the risk of uh, altering the electorate or maybe <laughs> altering it against me, uh, this is certainly my pick. I-, I love this card. We're not playing with the Orion, though. Come
0: on, <laughs> 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 gotta get more Mightstone, Weakstones in your deck, David. That's why your artifact list, <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> coming up short. <laughs> Next up, we have Gix, Yawgmoth, Praetor, returning to the ballot for the second month in a row. Gix, 1 black black, Legendary Phyrexian, Praetor. 3-3, whenever a creature deals combat damage to one of your opponents, its controller may pay a life, and if they do, they can draw a card. For 7 mana, for 4 black black black, you can also discard X cards, exile X cards from target opponent's library. You get to use those. Play their lands cast spells from among those cards uh, without paying their mana costs. Nominated this time by First Turn who notes that Gix was nominated last time with an emphasis on maybe that secondary ability. However, since then, Gix has helped multiple Faithless Brewers earn 5 Os across different archetypes. And we're talking about here First Turn own take on Demure Zombies. And DJF MTGs, who we just mentioned, uh, had a white-black uh, Urian token aggro deck that was also featuring Gix. That all happened during the discussion period last month when people were lobbying for Gix and saying, it's pretty good, actually. For example, I just 5 voted with it in the sweet through. <laughs> Gix came up a little bit short. I think Gix was maybe fifth in the balloting overall. So here's another chance. Um, if you want to see sweet Gix brews, uh, you can cast your vote for Gix. First turn of Gator adds that there's still a lot to explore. Move over, losing the game with seven cards in hand, and let's get back to aggro and win with seven cards in hand instead.
1: Can't argue with that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I knew we were doing something wrong here. Definitely, I have seven cards in hand. I got that <laughs> yeah, <much. laughs>
1: As long as that's happening, it can't be that wrong. Yeah. All right, next up, an oldie but a goodie from uh, the first Eldrazi set here. Devastating summons, one red sorcery as an additional cost to casting it. Sacrifice X lands, put two XX red elemental creature tokens onto the battlefield. This is from Kilgore Trout 503, and he writes, This card can do anything, but here's some quick examples. Trigger Risen Reef. Trigger Titania. Trigger Foundry Street Denizen. Trigger Three-Color Omnath. Get countered so you stone rain yourself. You get the idea. Yeah, these are all uh, legal outcomes of uh, resolving <laughs> um, <laughs> devastating summons.
0: <laughs> Trigger me, because every time I see this, I'm like reminded of all these... Awful decks that we've played over the years. Remember Seagate Stormcaller? And this was one of the sweet things you can do with Seagate Stormcaller. You can sack all your lands and get four XX creatures.
1: Yeah, what happened to that? That sounds sweet. Or the new copy card that you can play. Uh, The 2-1 that has to hit them twice.
0: Oh, the Spell Dancer.
1: So now we have the rule of eight.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Okay, this this card is amazing. It's super unique. It only costs one, so that's, that's the most important test. It's It will do what it says for the cheapest possible price. The uses that Kilgore Chart is outlining here are ones that actually I had not properly considered. Like, Risen Reef, three-color Omnath? Uh, Titania? I mean, that's that's fascinating. The most success for devastating summons is with, like, Goblin Bushwhacker-style cards, so...
1: Yeah, eight-whack eight is where originally we would see home was like, a two-of, right? Uh in a different era of modern, we must say, but that doesn't mean everterra can't be revisited.
0: Exactly, and that, that shell would actually use the Foundry Street as an interaction that Kilgore's talking about. So it's a, definitely a sweet card, and a tough one to think about, but like very unique, very cool.
1: Next up is Teething Wormlet, a green mana for a 1-1 one, one creature worm. It has death touch as long as you control three or more artifacts. I actually forgot about that line of text. Whenever an artifact enters the battlefield under your control, you gain a life. If this is the first time this ability has resolved this turn, put a plus one plus one counter on teething Wormlet. And the picture, of course, is a super adorable little worm. (laughs) Why it's a worm and not a dragon is kind of... It looks like a dragon, but whatever. So this card was recommended by Ignacio, who writes, Wormlet has been one of the most interesting miracle Grow adjacent cards in recent memory. Want some sort of Selesnya artifact beater? How about Pioneer Golgari Scales or even Golgari Sacrifice or Outright Infinite Life with Drafna? Wormlet may not be a full build round like others, but it is a compass that directs you in the way you want to execute your wacky dreams.
0: Again, one drops. I mean, this is the magic number. This card is going to do what it says for a cheap price. Wormlet has appeared in a couple of five-o lists in Modern. One was a Hardened Scales list, one was an Asmo food list. Nothing in Pioneer so far. I'm not sure if that's because the artifact package just doesn't make sense in green or if it's just like artifacts are underpowered in Pioneer, but it's tempting. I'm tempted. It's like a green Ingenious Smith, right? A little more aggressive.
1: Well, it doesn't draw a card.
0: But it's fast. It's cheap. It's true.
1: (laughs) It It does give you life. So the thing is, I think you need to find a way to like make the life matter and... The plus one, plus one matter and the artifact matter. So you just have a lot of things to like consider. And if you can make all those things matter, then I think you have something sweet on your
0: hands. I mean, Ignacio mentions comboing with draft. The, the way you do that is you play your worm on turn one. You have a draft and a mox Amber that lets you rebalance the mox Amber over and over again for a net cost of just one mana. How do you make that go infinite? You just add a kinnon and you're infinite. That's it. Infinite life. You could do that on turn two if you have two Mox Ambers, but the reason why I have not tried this personally is because Infinite Life is so tedious online, and it's yeah. just like, it doesn't actually win. You have to click through it a million times. So this could actually be really fun in paper and maybe just hard to test. Doesn't mean we should ignore it.
1: Agree. And you're only playing green and blue, which in Pioneer matters a lot, right? Just playing two mm-hmm. colors means your man's actually going to be sweet.
0: Yeah, those are Kinnon's colors. Yep. That's Kinnon's music. (laughs) All right, so next up we have Voidwing Hybrid, Blue-Black Creature Phyrexian Bats. Flying and Toxic 1, whenever you proliferate, return Voidwing Hybrid from your graveyard to your hand. Nominated for us by Daniel Barrett, who writes, Make a convincing pitch for me. Okay, (laughs) fair enough. Well, it turns out Daniel... I almost nominated this card myself uh, because my wife, who occasionally likes to nominate cards because she is a, a loyal patron of the show, mentioned to me like, oh, maybe she wants to nominate a bat card this time around. And I looked at what are the playable bats in Magic. This is by far the best bat in Magic. And I nearly put it into the uh, on her behalf into the voting pool. But then I didn't have to because Daniel Barrett actually nominated it himself. So there it is. There's my pitch. The strongest bat in all of MTG.
1: I also think this card is really close. Uh, The the question is the number of proliferate effects, right? Like, playing this on two, even just as a blocker, is not terrible. Like, it's going to trade with most other two drops. Uh, And if it doesn't, you at least get to put the first Toxic counter on them. In theory, your deck wants that to happen, right? As you proliferate, you'll you'll probably hope to win through Toxic. Maybe you have cards that only work if your opponent has three uh, poison counters. And I've I thought of it just as a, like a card advantage engine. If you had a bunch of ways to just like chuck it in the bin and then proliferate, and then comes back to your hand, and you discard it again. So yeah, there, there's there's something here, and there's a, another card that's suggested. I think any deck that includes this would include the other card. So maybe we'd get a two for.
0: Oh yeah, this is not the only proliferate card on the ballot this time. All right, so that's void being hybrid. What's next?
1: Next up is Machiko's Reign of Truth. Uh, Machiko is one and a white for an Enchantment Saga. The first and second uh, lore counters cause target creature get plus one plus one until end of turn for each artifact and/or enchantment you control. So Machiko counts itself; it always gives at least plus one plus one. Then the third, you exile it, and it makes a zero zero creature that gets plus one plus one for every enchantment artifact in play, or is it a two base two two? I can't remember. I think she's just a zero zero Michiko.
0: I believe so. Yeah.
1: So Ethan writes Urza's Saga five through eight. All the glitters ran power suit with enough effects across both formats. Is there something other than boggles auras that we can explore here? So briefly, when um, Luris was sort of a semi dominant force in Pioneer, there was a blue white like Scissors deck, and this was sort of Scissors five through eight. Uh super powerful. If you killed it after it flipped, which you often had to do, Lurus could buy it back. Um, so that was kind of the last we really saw of Machiko as like a, a format, almost a pillar, I would say, in Pioneer. Yeah, the problem is, you know, you don't want to just play a bunch of stuff just to make Machiko reasonable. You'd like all of your individual cards to be reasonably powerful. And, and that's always the question, right? So.
0: It's cheap enough and useful enough that it seems like it could be a a piece of like a new deck, whether that's like a Saga's deck or like maybe an enchantment deck or something. But the thing that it's best at is pumping up an Ornithopter or a Ginger Brute. Mm -hmm. It might have already been explored in, in that aspect, but it is a strong card and one that, you know, it's kind of on the fringes. So maybe we need to pay more attention to it.
1: Yeah, there are. There is like the prototype with double strike. Um, mm. There's the black prototype where they have to target it based on its power. That has life link.
0: Oh, okay, I like those. So
1: could it see play as a more like mid rangey type of card? You know, I don't necessarily love that, but that that's at least something.
0: Actually, I like that a lot. That's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, Skrelv is now an artifact that you'll have. So.
1: Oh yeah, get Skrelv in there.
0: Okay. Yeah, maybe there's actually more to discover with Machikos, and we just kind of let it slip off the radar. Next card up is Riveteer's Ascendancy, nominated by Deckard. Riveteer's Ascendancy is black, red, green for an enchantment. It says, whenever you sacrifice a creature, you may return target creature card with lesser mana value from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped, do it only once per turn. Deckard writes, who doesn't love three-mana do-nothing enchantments? Evoke a Fury, get back a Grief. Play a Kroxa, get back a free Ragavan. Maybe the extra value from a sacked Fable Kiki token can tempt you into a spicy brew. It's so much value and jank all in one. I definitely agree with Deckard that this is, bizarrely, it's more of a modern card than a pioneer card, despite being a little bit weaker the strongest natural sac effects are the Evoke Elementals, and I guess if we include Croxa here, uh, that's a stronger card in Modern as well. Am I reading this right, that uh, at the end step, when you lose your Kiki Fable token, that also counts as sacrificing?
1: Yeah, it does count that way, which is why the, um, <laughs> the Humble Defector doesn't die, because you have to sacrifice it so it goes to your opponent and doesn't have to be
0: sacrificed. Does a token copy have a mana Cost?
1: It's a copyright, so it should have the yeah. Because you can't like fable put fatal push a, a copied five drop.
0: Oh geez, I didn't even think about that. I mean, that, that usually doesn't matter, but it, it does matter for vintage ascendancy and for fatal push. Okay, we've dabbled in this card in modern. Weirdly enough, like, that tapped clause is one of the more punishing aspects of the card. Like, you really, you need to have a spectacular turn, the turn you cast for Ascendancy, that will involve these lines, like, evoking elementals, but then the fact that you're left with a tapped creature means you're not stable yet, and that that's a bit of a bummer. Like, I don't know why they added that extra rider, but it is sweet.
1: Yeah. Um, I wonder if there's something you could do with the uh, 1-1 lifelink creature when it comes into play from your graveyard, you get a 5-5 demon, and maybe you could play like um, some number of Riveteer's Ascendancy, some number of um, the new 3-mana Planeswalker that returns creatures from the graveyard, it's kind of replicative effects. And then you could play the 3 2 that makes a blood that taps to sacrifice itself. So it naturally sacrifices itself for ascendancy. It's good with the Tyvar. The um, and then with Tears ascendancy oh. in play, this brings back the 1 1 uh, as a demon. The tap effect doesn't matter, it triggers and puts an untapped demon into play. And then just in general, I, I and you and I both are attracted to the idea of, like, you know, whatever, turn one, thoughts, he's fatal push. Turn two, 3 two, uh, that makes a blood. And then, you know. Sack it, kill their elf, play Tyvar, bring it into play. Or if you have something in your graveyard, Riveture's Ascendancy also something. I don't know, just something to think about.
0: Okay, so we basically have a deck list now. We have (laughs) Archfiend's Vessel, Stitcher Supplier, Thoughtseize, Push, maybe Shambling Guest, 2 mana, Tithe Harvester, Fiend Artisan, maybe Priest of Forgotten Gods, 3 mana, Fable, Riveture's Ascendancy, and Tyvar. That's the deck. Yeah. Adjust the numbers until you have a deck. Okay, well, that actually sounds a lot better than I thought it would when you lay it all out like that.
1: I mean, the fact that Tyvar is like another duplicative effect, you don't have to be all in on the ascendancy, right? Like, you can play four Tyvar, two ascendancy, let's say. That's more ascendancies than anyone's ever put in a Pioneer deck, and your (laughs) deck is actually pretty coherent, and you know what it's trying to do. You know what it's trying to get back. Um... Maybe you could play some three drop like the two in a black that makes that makes a goat that sacrifices creatures or something like just another creature on 3 that you could sacrifice somehow that would also be good with your uh, priest of forgotten gods.
0: Okay. All right, there's some, there's something here more than I initially thought.
1: Devil mm-hmm. as a three drop if you're going to have all that blood and stuff. I don't know.
0: Something to think about. Three more cards to go.
1: Alright, Urza, Lord Protector. Urza, 2-4 for a for one, a white and a blue a legendary human artificer. Artifact Incident Sorcery spells you cast cost one less to cast. Seven mana colon. If you both own and control Urza, Lord Protector, and an artifact, named the Mightstone and the Weak Stone, XL them, then meld them into Urza Planeswalker, activate only as a sorcery. I won't go through what the Urza Planeswalker does. Sloth Thopterus writes poor olders uh people seem to want him as a collector's item but they don't think he can cut it in constructed play i don't know whether we can prove them wrong but we've got to at least try and do what the card says so i'm nominating him for the second time so i have done the thing i've put the planeswalker into play and i have lost those games like it is you do all this work and you don't for sure win that's the haunting thing You can't actually even be that far behind uh, for the Planeswalker to win the game for you. It's not that powerful of a Planeswalker.
0: Interesting. Urza was on the ballot last time and actually did pretty well. So another chance for Urza, just like another chance for Gix. We'll see. I mean, yeah, if you want to do the thing, you have to put mystone weakstone Weekstone into your deck. <laughs> we have a template already from the Pro Tour <laughs> playing zero Urza.
1: <laughs> zero Urza, which is where I've ended up in every deck with mystone and Weakstone.
0: We'll see. If the people demand it, then that's what we'll do.
1: Yeah, we gotta you got a democracy.
0: Our next card is Etherworks Marvel. parentheses, but really just the energy mechanic. Fair enough. Etherworks Marvel, legendary artifact costs four. Static text, whenever a permanent you control is put into a graveyard, you get an energy counter. You may tap and pay 6 energy to activate the Marvel. You look at your top 6 cards of your library. You may cast a card from among them without paying its mana cost. The rest go on the bottom. So in successful Marvel decks, you would try to spin the Marvel, look at your top 6, and because you're casting for free, you'll, you'll get your Ulamog trigger. You'll get your Emrakul trigger. That's the dream. Uh, Judge Rob, who nominated this card, writes that they just printed a ton of proliferate. Hmm. Does energy deserve another look in modern and pioneer since it just got a bunch of virtual support? I listed Aetherworks Marvel, but really I'm more interested in the energy mechanic as a whole.
1: The problem I have there is that the cards that gave you energy actually just gave you a lot of energy. So proliferating a single energy each time, isn't that much more powerful strapped to some of these cards than the cards that actually gave you energy, right? So like even if they printed a card that was one green, find a basic land, and proliferate, and they printed a card that was only split card, right? Proliferate or find a basic land. That would still give you less energy than the one green mana sorcery, find a basic land, add two energy. So the proliferate isn't actually that good because the, the energy cards were so generous. That's why so many of them ended up getting um, banned in standard.
0: And they haven't printed any energy support in years. Alchemy, they added, like, a couple energy cards, but for us paper players, <laughs> us suckers who only play with cardboard, we got nothing, right? We got no new energy cards. So, unfortunately, like, there's a fairly narrow pool to work with, but but there may be something there. Like, energy was so good in Standard that, you know, you're, you kind of wonder, like, maybe with Treasures, you know, triggering the Marvel, maybe there's, like, a, some backdoor way to get to six. Maybe it's not proliferating per se, but it's just, you know, using the static text.
1: Yeah, it could be. I mean, the the treasures actually is more promising to me than um, specifically any proliferate effect that we've discussed. There's obviously other weakness, you know, Karn in a format where you're trying to uh, activate another other words, Marvel. We don't need to get into all that, but.
0: I mean, maybe other words, Marvel is how we cast our all will be one. Right. Forget about Ulamar. Well, that's
1: what I, that's that's you know it's exactly something like that where it's like you just have counters going you know this way and that way and you're proliferating because you're trying to do all kinds of stuff, um, and maybe you're you know like other Marvel isn't trying to hit these crazy cards. It's just the cards are naturally adding tokens and then a bunch of like six mana planeswalkers that are good. If Marvel casts them on four, they're good. If um, the five mana enchantment is in play, so it's almost like your duplicative effect. Because people forget at the end, they were people were only playing like four Ulamog and they were Mm -hmm. playing like multiple, like six mana Chandras, the original six mana Chandra that, like, uh, Mm -hmm. I think zeroed to make two, three, one tramples or something with haste, Mm -hmm. or maybe a plus one to do that. Then it zeroed to like flip your hand and did three damage to everything. Anyway, it's much worse than the six mana Chandra we have access to now. Uh, so yeah, maybe that's the way to go. I, I actually like the sound of that more.
0: And sticking with the proliferate theme, we have our last card, Flux Channeler. It's two and a blue for a human wizard. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, proliferate. Nominated for us by Chrism23, who notes that it's my second attempt at getting this card across the line. However, with poison counters back and in Pioneer, plus the new oil counters, I think this is easy to utilize.
1: I think this easy to utilize proliferator is even more valuable now. Thank you. <laughs> like, it's activated by all non-creature spells as Chrism 23 notes. So, Sagas, Planeswalkers, Artifacts. Uh, they mentioned Pentad Prism as uh, super cool, right? You can play Prism on two, this on three with two mana up. Um, you can use a counter from your Prism to trigger it, or you could play, like, Mishra's Bobble or something. And you've got this, like, crazy little ramp package.
0: It's a very interesting card. Right. It comes from War of the Spark. There's In the same set, there's Evolution Sage, which proliferates on Landfall. So there's a lot of sneaky options for proliferating, you know, if we're looking at the Void Wing hybrid deck, or the All Will Be One deck, or the Energy deck. These are all cards in the mix. Yeah, Flux Channel are definitely pushing you towards the spells direction, but that pentad Prism, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's pretty slick.
1: Yeah, I'd like this Flux Chandler with the bat that we mentioned earlier. If you imagine a deck that, like, pieces of the puzzle on three puts a bat in a couple other cards in your graveyard, you draw whatever, Treasure Cruise and a Consider. Mm -hmm. We're living a magical Christmas land. Turn four, I play my Flux Chandler. I play, um, you know, a spell. I proliferate. I put my Batwing, whatever, back into my hand. Um, You know, because you you, kind of have a way to cascade spells for Opt. For consider, for push, for treasure cruise, and then this is just another the the bad is a way to get the first poison counter on them. If that's how you want to win, you could just play Red in this deck if you just want to draw a bunch of cards. Uh, yeah, whatever you want to do.
0: I'm just imagining having flux channeler and mindspace apparatus in play at the same time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> what more could you want?
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, it's definitely sweet. The stats on this creature are, are not promising.
1: <laughs> it's fragile. <laughs> it's very fragile.
0: All right, well, those are our 12 options this time around. Some returning favorites. Uh, a lot of interest, it looks like, in proliferating and getting different kinds of tokens and counters. And some unexplored stuff, like the, the teething Wormlet and Machiko's Reign of Truth, looking at artifacts again. Interesting takes on sacrifice and devastating summons and river ascendancy. And of course, the sweet value from Malkator and Radadrabic. So, David, to close us out, I gotta I gotta put the question to you. You don't get to vote, but if you did, which three cards would you choose?
1: I would choose Malkator. Um, I would choose Gix, and I would choose All Be
0: One. Okay, well there you go. Good choices. Solid choices. For me, Malkator, it's hard to turn down. Uh, I think works Marvel. I, I miss energy, and I enjoy the challenge. I enjoy playing Ether Hub and Rogue Refiner. And, I, yeah, I mean, I'm tempted by Teething Wormlet, but I think I'm going to have to go with A Heroes Ascendancy, just because of <laughs> that bad deck that was hastily assembled. Oh, I
1: suckered you in with my uh, little dream there. <laughs> yeah.
0: I know it's going to be like one of the weakest cards in the deck, but it's an interesting it's an interesting space to brew in. All right. Well, those are the nominees. Now it's up to you. It's not up to us. It's up to you. Go cast your votes uh, if you are listening and would like to help weigh in, help us help nudge us towards the next great card on this list. You can of course go sign up on our Patreon. We'll leave this vote open for about a week and we'll let you know what the people say.
1: All right. Take care
0: deck lists for this episode can be found at our homepage faithlessbrewing.com and tune in next time for new brews with mind spliced apparatus plus testing results with atraxa grand unifier support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you join the faithless family and help support the show at patreon.com faithlessbrewing for discord access bonus content and more that's all for today stay safe and we'll see you next time